welcome to my hearth. Now today's episode is a very usual storytelling device, and that is to have as one of the main elements of the story the changing nature of the weather. And as you can imagine, in this country of England in particular, well I should say Great Britain, what the weather is doing is very pertinent. For British people, what the weather is doing is always very present because we cannot predict what it's going to do. I know in some places in the world, the weather can be predictable. I understand that in parts of America, really, there's not that much change in the seasons and there's not that much change in the weather. A major question might be, when is it going to rain because we're suffering a drought? But in this country, the weather can change in an instant. I love the fact that in certain northern countries, they have huge numbers of descriptions of what the snowfall is going to be. In this country, we have many descriptions of rain. We live on a relatively small island and the prevailing wind tends to be from the west and as a result our weather is carried across the Atlantic and very often contains rain. Where the clouds hit mountains it is more likely to rain than when it has a smooth ride across flat lands. Spending part of my childhood in the Lake District my mother was always very strong to point out that if we didn't have the rain, we wouldn't have the lakes. And certainly we wouldn't have the beautiful torrents and cascades that came down off the hillsides from the fells. Now as a storytelling device, what the weather is doing is very useful. It can be used to create an atmosphere as all the characters in the story are affected by it. It can be used as a dramatic device, especially if the characters then get cut off in an isolated spot because of the weather. The beautiful romantic comedy Bus Stop, the film of which starred Marilyn Monroe, is all based on the idea of people being trapped in a diner because of the weather. Murder mysteries really benefit from people not being able to reach the scene of the crime because of the weather. Where the weather mirrors the atmosphere of the story has been given a kind of official name. It's known as a pathetic fallacy. I'm sure Catherine Anshaw would be very pleased to know that whilst she's running around in Yorkshire trying to find a way in, that that's as a result of a pathetic fallacy. Using the weather as a storytelling device is more flexible, obviously, than using the landscape, because the weather can change in an instant. I love storytelling where people in the story say, oh, we had all four seasons in one day, because I'm thinking, well, that's great for a storyteller. We can either use the predictability of the pattern of weather, 
or the unpredictability of it. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. I have a weather app on my phone because I always want to know what the weather is going to do. Am I going to be taking a hat or an umbrella with me? Again, referring to the Lake District, very often the local inhabitants would know when it was not a good idea to go climbing a mountain. If there was snow on the tops, what you dreaded was that there would then be cloud coming down and you would get the effect of a whiteout where you couldn't tell what was sky and what was land. Travelling on the train coming over a fell, especially at Shap, which was one of the highest points on the railway line, there was always a dread that you would get caught in a snowdrift. And I understand that in earlier times they carried loads of shovels on the train so that you could dig yourself out of the problem. It seems really unusual to us now, in these times of warmer winters, that when I was little, very often, my dad would carry a spade in the back of the car, and it wasn't just to bury any bodies that we happened to find. If we had freak weather when we were little, it did cause a lot of upset. Everyone went on about the really bad winter, 1962-63, where it snowed on Christmas Eve, which was very welcome for a white Christmas, but the snow was still laying thick on the ground at Easter. It gave us lots of problems with fresh food and also the delivery of food about the place. Mail was interrupted, it was difficult to get bread and milk, and I remember, because I was so incredibly tiny when I was little, the difficulty of getting to school. My Aunt Essie, who lived in Canada, sent me a very small, well it would need to be for me, Eskimo outfit, which was the envy of all my schoolfellows, because it had fur lining, it was an, a proper anorak with a hood, and matching trousers, and it was incredibly snugly. And I understand that after I'd used it, it was passed through the family and was used for many years. I have photographs of me standing in snowy conditions and not looking at all out of place in my Eskimo outfit. People always say if you spent a lot of time in the north of England, then you're very good at withstanding the cold. It's the absolute opposite for me. I can't tell you what I'm like in cold weather. Well, I'm equally difficult in hot weather. In fact, there's probably only a few degrees that really suit me. I'm so fair-skinned that I don't really like the sun or being out in the sun, and I feel the cold terribly. We had real fires all the way through my childhood and really that became a major part of the day, dealing with what the fires were doing. If people of that generation could see us now living with our central heating, they would be amazed. That whole idea of, I'm going to my bedroom to work, just would not have happened. Because you went to your bedroom just to sleep 
and you very often had to take a hot water bottle with you to stop the bed being freezing. We expect nowadays to be warm wherever we are and whenever we are, but obviously at those times you were only warm if you were by a fire. When people arrived, very often they were told to take their outer coat off else they wouldn't feel the benefit of it when they went outside, but often they had to keep it on for a bit anyway just to warm up. People were offered a hot drink when they came in and it was partly to help them warm their hands up. I start each of my podcasts with Welcome to My Hearth because that was always the focal point of the room. Nowadays, of course, it's the television. We are given our storytelling passively through an object on the wall. Now, why is the weather so part of the story of my family? I've already said that my father met my mother in the Lake District when he was on his special motorcycle course so that when he was in Italy he could drive through the mountains to bring the information back to the forces. When eventually they got married, my mother obviously moved to live with him in North London. Now the problem was that obviously my mum was coming from the incredibly clean air of Cumbria down to the relatively dirty air of London. Everybody had real fires in London, and as a result of that, occasionally they got these horrible smogs, which is where the smoke and the fog sort of combined to make this thick pea super, which was so wonderful for storytelling, but not if you were having to move about in it. And unfortunately my mum developed asthma. And in the end it got so bad that the doctor suggested that they move out of London. Now they couldn't go very far because my father's office was in Chancery Lane. So wherever they went it had to be commutable. Now very often he was out and about with his job assessing particular claims or deciding whether it was possible for whatever was happening to be insurable and the company had given him a car. Now again it's one of those areas in my story where it's very unfortunate that I didn't have a proper conversation with them to find out the exact details but my understanding is that my dad did have uh, a weekend place in Essex at Holbridge, which is on the River Crouch. Now, I should say that my father had a good job his whole life and had never had a mortgage, obviously, because his family bought up property all over the place. And the local estate agent in Holbridge was always coming to see my dad and saying, I've got a piece of land here, would you like to buy it? As I say, I don't know the full story behind it, but suffice it to say that if there was any land going, he bought it. 
the kind of internal motto of my family was that you couldn't go wrong with land or property. His hobby was building, and so whenever he got a piece of land, if it was suitable, he built a property on it. It wasn't until I went to university that I lived in a property that my father hadn't built. And in fact, he did come up several times to repair things and do things to any property in which I lived. When they were out of the country, I went to be with my grandparents in the Lake District. That's because my father's mum, my maternal grandma, Grandma Nancy, had gone to live in Australia. And so there wasn't the option of living in London, even though there was still property there, they'd rented everything out. Alternatively, if they were going to be away a long time, sometimes my grandparents came down and lived in our house in Essex. And this gave me my slightly nomadic existence of living part of the time in Essex and part of the time in Keswick. Now, when you are little, the usual becomes the normal, and I thought everybody did things like that. I thought people had several places where they lived and just moved about accordingly. The key for me was school. It was very important that I stayed in one place, and so it was decided that I would do my primary school in Essex. And where I was, at any one particular time, was determined by that. Once I went to boarding school, it didn't matter where I or my family were. And so again, they moved about, but I remained in one place. But more of that in another podcast. <laughs>